Hello and welcome to DW's Conflict Zone podcast. I'm Tim Sebastian. And my guest in Brussels is the European Parliament's Vice President, Katerina Barley. If you enjoy this programme, don't forget to like and share it. The EU says it will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. But as for joining the Union, there's still a long way to go. With the war now in its second year, what happened to the sense of urgency about EU membership that Kiev said was so vital? Does the EU really want Ukraine to win? For now, the EU is insisting Ukraine won't get full membership unless it cracks down on corruption. But with the European Parliament drowning in the so-called Catergate lobbying scandal, isn't that just sheer hypocrisy? Just how long have EU officials themselves been turning a blind eye to rules, ethics and basic honesty? Katerina Bailey, welcome to Conflict Zone. Thank you very much, Tim. Despite admitting that Ukraine is fighting for Western values, fighting and dying for those values, the EU has poured cold water on Kiev's hopes for early accession. You yourself said recently the country still had a long way to go to join the EU. I wonder if you can imagine how discouraging that must be to people who don't even know if they'll be alive tomorrow or whether their buildings will still be standing. Well, actually, the EU has acted very, very rapidly um, supporting Ukraine, um, much more rapidly than we're used to, to actually. Within three days, uh, we supported Ukraine financially with weapons, what we've never done before, and with sanctions. And even when it comes to, to accession, um, we made Ukraine a candidate country um, in a in a in a speed that was never seen before. And um, but we cannot sort of. I mean, it's a big country, and um, exceeding the European Union is something that we will then altogether have to live for a long time. So so it has to be done carefully. But what Ukraine wanted, according to Olga Stefanishnya, the president's top official for European integration was to maintain a sense of urgency about Ukraine's membership, not delay. Was that really too much to ask? Well, we did. As I said, uh, we made Moldova and Ukraine um, an accession country, and candidate uh, country, although they do not fulfill the criteria, and they, they admit this. We have three, three kinds of criteria, political ones, like democracy, rule of law, etc. Economical ones, you have to kind of be able to keep up economically, and um, you have to have a certain, you know, a certain degree of cohesion in in, in laws. None of them are are even in in sight uh, for Ukraine and Moldova, and still we made them uh, candidate countries. And they, I mean, of course they do demand this in public, but if you talk to them, they appreciate this very much because it also goes in line already with financial contributions, for example. Well, well, we'll come on to the financial contributions in a minute, but Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kalebo, asked for tangible, practical results from his last meetings in Brussels, but you, you failed to give him any. So, so let me ask the question on their behalf. Is the EU going to open accession talks this year? Ukraine sees absolutely no reason why it shouldn't. As I said, if you talk to Ukrainian officials, they know very well that they have been treated in a way that no other country has been treated before, in a very, very favorable way. And as I said, the support that EU is giving Ukraine now in the war 
is outstanding. So um, I understand that the officials do, you know, keep this pressure up. But there are two in in when you exceed the European Union, there's countries that enter, and there's the European Union that has to, you know, be able to take them on board. And the Ukraine, Ukraine has 45 million inhabitants. It would be, I think, the third largest country in the European Union. So it's, I mean, it's not something done just politically. It has to really be be prepared very carefully. And and it, I'm absolutely positive that the officials understand that perfectly. You personally have suggested that fast-tracking Ukraine would be unfair to other candidate countries who've had a long wait. I'm sorry, but are any of those other countries having their towns and villages bombed by an invading superpower, their women raped, their children deported, their men tortured and shot in the back of the head in the cause of defending European values? Because if they're not, shouldn't they perhaps cede their place in the queue to a country that is enduring all that for the sake of the entire continent, you included? They have. Uh, a lot of these countries have waited more than 10 years for even becoming a candidate country. Bosnia and Herzegovina, for example, just got this status after, after more than a decade. So they, they are um, seeing this difference as well as we are. And we're acting in that way. But if you look, for example, at Northern Macedonia, this country even changed its name because you had Greece and Bulgaria who had an issue with Macedonia being called Macedonia. And they did this, which is not the same situation as Ukraine, of course not. No, of course it but isn't. It is it's, nothing, it's nothing like it. A name change is something you do with the stroke of a pen. These people are defending their life and the existence of their country every single day. Look, I, I, I can repeat the same, the same fact all over again. What the Ukraine is being granted is something that firstly has never been done before and secondly, um, is something that uh, is being really re seen, seen and rewarded from the officials. And thirdly, um, it goes in line with a support in this war situation that is unprecedented. And I don't know any official from Ukraine who would deny this. Now, comparing this to the accession states on the Western Balkan and saying, um, look, uh, what you have done is, what, what do you say you do it with a, you know, imagine the UK changing its name for whatever reason. Can you imagine that? Is that, is that something that goes like this? There is no, I mean, we shouldn't even try to compare this. The situation of Ukraine is completely unique. And we are acting, we're dealing with them according to this situation and supporting them. All right, let's, let's, talk, about, let's talk about what support you are giving them. Um, back in May, the Commission President announced a financial assistance package of 9 billion euros. Almost half a year later, that package remained stuck in arguments between member countries. Why was that? Well, we, we have 
a system where the member countries are actually the ones because the European Union does not have a, a, a competence of its own for foreign policy. So it's actually the member states who are contri contributing to, um, to the aid for Ukraine. And I can say it for my own country that we're, we have been uh, giving, I mean, billions for Ukraine and a lot of other member states have done that too. So what the European Union as a whole does is add on. I mean, although people sometimes believe that the European Union is, is, a, is a, an institution with a whole lot of money to, that it sits on, that's not the case. The budget of the European Union, the annual budget, is something around 180 billion. Now that sounds a lot, but I mean, in uh, at compared to to the German budget, for example, it's 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 a very small sum. So you have the member states contributing for Ukraine, which they do. Germany does it, France does it, Poland, Baltic states, in a very I I think in an in an admirable manner. I mean, especially the countries that are that are close to Ukraine. But the delays, so, Katerina Bali, the delays, of course, considerable distress to the Ukrainians. Oleg Gustenko, economic advisor to Ukraine's president, said our minister of finance is under extreme high pressure when he sends these checks to the military, to pension funds. We have to have this money in his hands. So something like a week or several weeks delay is just not acceptable. He's right, isn't he? To, to dangle the offer of aid in front of them and then fail to hand it over in time is not fair, is it? As far as I know, I mean, the, the Ukraine has, has extremely high costs on all sides, military costs, but also civil costs. So they, I mean, they have to pay their, um, their civil servants, for example. So as far as I know, the aid, it's not only European Union, by the way, but the aid uh, of the international community has always reached Ukraine in time to do so. Well, the fact is that more than half of the 30 billion euros pledged by both the EU and the European Investment Bank, the biggest share of the West budgetary support, still hasn't reached Kiev. That's 17.5 billion out of 30 billion euros still not been handed over. Aren't you in danger of over-promising and under-delivering here? Now, as I said, um, the main contributions are being made by, by the member states. And I, I can only, I mean, I find, I've never had a discussion like this, I have to say, because, because um, usually um, it is being seen as something quite extraordinary what is happening at the moment. And the sums that um, European states and of course also the US and others um, are donating or giving or supporting um, Ukraine with are absolutely extraordinary. I mean, these are these are sums that these countries, um, you know, they haven't been there sitting somewhere waiting for 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 being transferred to Ukraine. So for all of these countries, it is quite an effort, and they are doing it. And I think um, this this actually merits some some respect. Well, Janet Yellen, U.S. Treasury Secretary, they, they uh, said in October, and she hasn't hidden her own impatience with some of the delays in getting money to Ukraine. She said donors need to keep stepping up the scale, 
predictability and grant component of disbursements must improve. Same thing from Jacob Kierkegaard from the German Marshall Fund. He put it even more bluntly. He said, from the perspective of other G7 members, not least, of course, the US, it's very clear that Europe is hedging or is, as usual, dragging its feet. Not quite the picture that you are painting yourself from Brussels today. Yes, and it's not it's not the impression that I have. I mean, all of these, as I said, all of these countries have to um, have to mobilize m money, huge amounts of money, and they are doing this. I mean, I, w I don't want to talk about my country. Let's talk about countries like Poland and the small Baltic states and see what they are doing on in military aid. I mean, as I said, things that we have never done before, delivering all sorts of material, uh, military material, and delivering money. Um, and supporting with, with all sorts of other measures. Um, of course, we have to keep doing this, and we are very much committed um, up doing, uh, to doing this. And we will, um, I mean, for example, Chancellor Schultz has always said that um, we have to support Ukraine as long as it is needed, and we will do this. As long as it is needed to, to what? To win? Or to survive, or, or what is what, what what is the limit on this? As long as Ukraine is willing to fight, I think that it is up to Ukraine and, and only up to Ukraine to decide um, how and when uh, this this war, um, when they take action in, in in ending this war, or when they agree on on ending this war, they haven't started it. So they are the only ones who can say this is a point where we are willing to talk, where we are talk, willing to talk about whatever. It's only up to them to define. But the truth is that the West hasn't given Ukraine enough to win, has it? Igor Zhovka, chief foreign policy advisor to President Zelensky, spelt it out very clearly. He said, if we were getting enough support, we would already have won the war and be celebrating victory with you here today. He has a point, doesn't he? All this begs the question, not, does the EU really want Ukraine to win this war? I, I'm not a military expert. I don't know if you are. And I, I completely understand that the point of President Zelensky and his, um, and his advisors and his, his government um, is urging uh, to give more and more and more. And that is, uh, that is of course, completely understandable. Um, well, the situation at, on the I mean, battlefield is precarious, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So, so we, we deliver to Ukraine weapons that we don't even have included in our arm yet, because they are the most modern of the most modern. And um, I think this shows the commitment to Ukraine. Let's look at uh, what the EU wants from Ukraine in terms of reforms. High on the list, changes to judicial oversight and a, a crackdown on corruption. As a matter of interest, how much reforming do you think Germany would manage if it was being invaded concurrently by Russia? It is not the question what there has to be done now. But I have to say, I mean, President Zelensky really took important measures against corruption during the war because he sees that even during war times, there are people in Ukraine who um, make profit on this who sell goods uh, for too high a price, who, um, who buy uh, Ukrainian goods for 
too cheap. Um, so there is corruption in the country. And President Zelensky just recently, I think a couple of weeks ago, took important measures on this. So because it is in the interest of the country also now. But of course, it is not up to us to tell them now in the situation of war exactly you have to do this and that in judiciary etc this is this is something that's uh, will um that will be on the table for after the war for the rebuilding process and also of course for the accession process but it is is ironic isn't it that corruption measures are one of the eu's key demands of ukraine at exactly the same time as the european parliament is drowning in its own corruption scandal known as catagate this is a this is a huge blow to the parliament's prestige isn't it it is, absolutely. But it's where there is power and where there's politics, unfortunately, there is always a big danger of corruption. And the question is, how do you, do, how do you deal with it? Um, I mean, I, I, am a, I have been a fighter for rule of law and, anti, and against corruption for all my life. And of course, now people like Viktor Orban, the Hungarian um, prime minister, are... are are saying exactly this. And I, I then say, if, um, if you're corrupt in the European Parliament, you end in front of a judge and in jail. Well, I, I, want, I, want, to, I want to examine that statement in detail. Perhaps we should just um, explain that the scandal centers around bribes allegedly paid by Qatar to members of the European Parliament to reduce criticism of its treatment of migrant workers in the run-up to the World Cup. Qatar has denied the charge, so have most of those who've been arrested. But huge sums in cash have been retrieved, not least from Eva Kelly, a, a Greek MEP, and like, like you, a vice president of the European Parliament. She's charged with corruption after handing a suitcase with 300,000 euros to her father. She denies any wrongdoing. Much more, of course, to investigate on this, but does any of this shock you? Absolutely. I mean, I have been working next to um, this person. I have only been member of this parliament for three years, and she has only been vice president for a, a year now. But she has been a, a colleague of mine, of course. I've worked closely with her. Uh, I never got along with her very well, but I would have never, ever have imagined her sitting on suitcases full of, full of money. Um, but as I said, the, the question is now, how we deal with this. And we deal with, with this, first of all, she got kicked out of all of her functions within days. Secondly, um, she has been arrested by the Belgian authorities um, and is still in custody. Um, and thirdly, we have, or we are still um, in a process of examining all our rules here that are already quite severe but examining the loopholes and closing them. Well, there have been you... plenty of loopholes, haven't there, Katerina? In fact, there's been warning after warning for years that the EU's anti-corruption procedures were lax and non-existent. Nothing was done to remedy the situation. Um, the German Green MEP, Daniel Freund, says a majority in the European Parliament has repeatedly voted against transparency reforms in the past. You must have noticed that, or didn't it worry you? I have, I have absolutely. It's unfortunately the conservative part of our of our parliament. Um, it's neither the Greens nor, well, uh, I don't want to. No, I don't want to make this a party political thing. Let's let's stop there. Um, it's, no, because it's, some of those arrested uh, have come from your party, haven't they? 
Absolutely, no, almost, almost all of them. So, so, so there isn't, um, so there isn't a party political issue here. But Transparency International EU has called it a culture of impunity in the Parliament, which had some of the weakest sanctions in place. Every serious attempt to improve accountability, it said, is blocked by the Parliament's ruling bureau with the acquiescence of a majority of MEPs. So the, yes. the Parliament has consistently turned a blind eye to corruption here, hasn't it? Well, I, I am the I am one who has always voted for uh, more serious uh, measures. Uh, so I agree that uh, the measures are not severe enough. Um, the measures on transparency actually are more severe than, for example, in the German Bundestag. But the problem, indeed, is the sanctions side. We do have sanctions um, against the um, uh, the companies, for example, who um, who try to influence uh, MEPs via corruption or also the commissioner or whoever. But the sanction side toward, towards MEPs, that is one of the, of the, um, the points that have to be uh, strengthened. And we're in this process of doing that. But I have, I have one thing to say. I mean, what these people have done, allegedly, they're not yet convicted, but what these people probably have done um, is a violation of criminal law. And I think one has to be aware that you can have transparency rules and you can make them as severe as you want. If you have people with this criminal um, intention who are willing to break laws that bring you into jail for years, they will not be stopped by transparency rules. You have to be aware of that. So what these transparency rules have That's no excuse for not having any or not respecting the ones that you have, is it? Well, if you, if you let me finish the sentence, what we have to do is strengthen these rules in order especially to see into the... to, to realise earlier what is happening and to prevent this from actually happening. And for example, to strengthen whistleblowing, this is one of my key um, key points that I'm focusing on. So that people who, who realize here's something going on, that they can go to a safe place and say, look, there is an MEP or an assistant. We are going to extend the rules, not only from MEPs to assistants, because apparently the network was was mostly uh, within, within the assistant body. We're going to extend these rules and to, to have a safe place where people can go and say, look, here is something going wrong. Have a look in here and to detect that much earlier so that these things um, hopefully do not happen at all. And if they happen, in, that, they, that they're that being discovered and punished. Um, you, can, you, can, you can propose all these rules till the cows come home, but if MEPs vote against them in the way that they have in the past, they're not going to happen, are they? They're not going to become a reality. Yes, well, we as a group, uh, the, the progressives, as we call it, the social democrats, so to say, we have given ourselves already much stronger rules, much uh, uh, more severe rules. And we have said for our, for our group that even if the majority of the parliament does not vote on, on stronger rules, we are going to apply these very much more severe rules, for example, extending um, the, the regime on, on our assistance and many, many others, we are going to apply this for us, nevertheless, if the majority votes for them or not. Suddenly, when the scandal breaks, the European Parliament President, Roberta Mazzola, hurries to register 142 gifts that she hadn't bothered to register before. 142. 
Doesn't look good, does it? No, it doesn't. But have you had a look at the at the gifts? You can, you can have a look at them on the Parliament's website. Um, it, it is not good. I mean, she has to apply to the rules. There's no, no doubt about that. But if you have a look at them, there are, there's a sausage. Um, there, are, um, there are pictures that are being painted by kids. Have a look at them. Um, it's, it's nothing where you would say that it is, this is something that you would actually influence a decision with. It's a principle, um, though, isn't it? It's a principle. You either, you either abide by the rules or you don't. I, I said that. I said that. And there are other things that she hasn't declared which are more worrying than that. Um, like? Like, um, like uh, that she spent um, uh, a few days in a nice uh, resort, uh, a red wine resort in, in, in Burgundy or somewhere with her husband, uh, which hadn't been declared, with uh, apparently not really a connection to... Um, to the office. Sounds like a lot of skeletons in the European Parliament's cupboard. Well, Katerina Bali, we've run out of time. Thank you. But may, Thank I, you. may I just say this one sentence that the vast majority of politicians in the European Parliament and elsewhere are, are honest people uh, like myself. And um, you, you shouldn't judge uh, all politicians by those skeletons. All right. Katerina Bali, thank you very much for being on Conflict Zone. Thank you. You're welcome. If you enjoyed the interview, please subscribe to the podcast and give Conflict Zone a review on your preferred platform. Thanks for listening.